to every generation. The broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Tonight we're going to be in uh, James chapter 1. James chapter 1 we do in our home group. And when I decided to do James chapter 1, I was reading about the persecuted church. And we had a discussion at our home group. If we were persecuted like people in the Middle East, if someone came to said they're about to close the church down or, or threaten you, what would you do? What exactly would, what would you do? Would you just stop praying to the Lord? Would you run away from the church? And if you did, how would you practice your, your faith? And that's what James is all about tonight. James uh, talks about the persecuted church and what happened during that time. But just uh, on a historical point, uh, just to tell you about who James was. A lot of people confuse James with James the Apostle. But this James was the brother of Jesus. And Jesus had more than one brother. He had James, he had Joseph, he had Simon, he had Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but Judas. Those were common names back then. So was James. Now he also had sisters, but there wasn't written in the Bible that they had sisters. And nothing really known about the sisters of Jesus. But James was also known as James the Just. Right? He was also known as Old Camel Knees. And when I read about that, I, I thought back uh, about my grandmother, who was a housekeeper, who raised me. And she was a maid. And she was a maid for, at that time, the borough president of Brooklyn. And she had to scrub the floors. And back then, there was no swiffer. You know, you had to go on your hands and knees and she would scrub the floors until you see your face in them. And she would do the brownstone stoops and she'd be on her hands and knees and scrubbing the stoops. And she'd come home and after a long period of time, you could see the calluses that built up on her knees. They were like a half inch thick. But that's why they called James Old Camel Knees because he used to pray. When he prayed, he was always on his knees all the time. But Jesus' ministry was misunderstood by his brothers, his siblings. They didn't really believe in him. They didn't really believe in his ministry. And how do we know that? If we turn to John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For even his brothers did not believe in him. Think about that. You know, growing up with, with someone like Jesus, you know there's something different about them. You know, you just, you just know it, but you don't really believe in what, he, what he's preaching what he's doing, you know. So James became the earliest witness of Jesus' resurrection. It was that time at the resurrection that he had a special appearance by Jesus at that time, just him. And if we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 6 through 7, it says, After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to be present, but some have fallen asleep, died, after that, he was seen by James, then by the apostles. So James had a special appearance. And was, he didn't believe in Jesus through his own ministry, but after the resurrection, he came to Jesus and just shows you the power of the resurrection. I mean, he physically saw Jesus. And that's it's the same with us. 
The power of the resurrection brings us to Jesus, doesn't it? Don't we, we don't physically see Jesus, but we see Jesus. And how do we see Jesus? We see Jesus in the Word. And, his, and, the, and the power of the resurrection brought us to him. Now, that's why so many people who deny Jesus, who deny God, try to disprove the resurrection, because that's the core of our belief. But they'll never be able to do it. So when James became part of the group of believers and he prayed in the upper room, for that forward, on forward time forward, Jesus, James, status with, with the Jerusalem church began to grow. The Apostle Paul, when he was con- converted, met first time with James and Peter. When the church of Jerusalem began, James began to be the chairman and was an elder and became the pastor of the church, and he was called the pillar of the church. And he was believed to be martyred in 62 AD. And there's no biblical record of his being martyred, but historians say they took him up to the top of the temple. And as he was preaching, they threw him off the temple. But he didn't die right away. But he got up on his knees and started praying, and then they clubbed him to death. So many of the apostles were martyred, and I thought that was just brutal of what they did with James among the other apostles that they did. So now, James becomes uh, the leader of the church and his people get scattered. And he says, and he says, uh, and he uh, sees his people get scattered. And it tells you that in in Acts 8, chapter one, he says, now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So beginning with chapter, uh, first one, in chapter one, it says, James, a bondservant of, the, of God and of Lord, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bondservant, the definition of a bondservant is dedicated his life to his master, James considered himself a bondservant of Jesus. And a lot of times we serve, do we serve as a bondservant to Jesus? Do we really serve with all our heart? Or do we just go through the motions? James considered himself a bondservant. But what's more interesting here is that James says that he's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He put God and the Lord Jesus Christ on the same plane. And just to think about that, this was a person that didn't believe in, in, in Jesus when he was a family member. Now all of a sudden, he puts God and Jesus on the same plane, which I find really kind of interesting. And then he says, to the 12 tribes in, that are scattered abroad, he says, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now I said, just him saying, count it all joy about trials. Who wants to be happy about trials? Right? You can be happy a lot about a lot of other things. You can profit from a lot of other things, but trials, well, trials. You know, and he says, and take notes when he says, my brother, count it all joy when you fall into trials. He doesn't say if. He says when. And we're all going to face trials. And we know that now. Most of us always... Trials somewhere along the line. 
But he said to him, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So he says, knowing. Knowing is like you know. You know that Jesus is going to be there with you through the trials. You know that, you know. And he says, testing of your faith produces patience. Some of your Bibles might say steadfastness. But I like endurance better. And I looked up endurance, and, and endurance is, the definition of endurance is the quality of what it takes to finish a marathon. That, that quality that you, you have to p- persevere to finish a marathon. I, I remember when I tried out for football in high school, right? And I did the 50 yard, uh, 50 yard dash, and I had to run to the 50 yard line. I was fast enough to run to the 50 yard line. But after that, when you had to keep going and run the whole length of the field, I petered out. The whole team just went right by me, you know. But that doesn't do us any good when we have our walk with the Lord. Our walk with the Lord is a marathon from the day that we come to the Lord to the day that we see him. And we have to endure. And, And he says, but let it patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect. And when the Bible says perfect, it's not like we think perfect is. You ever talk to somebody and they say, oh, you know, you get into an argument about, oh, you did this. And he says, well, I'm not perfect. You know, who says you're perfect? No one's perfect. That's not the perfect that they're talking about. The perfect that the Bible talks about is having finished the race, to endure to finish the race in that marathon through the trial. That he wants you to, to... to endure what he has to teach you going through that trial. So he says, and to be complete, knowing that the endurance is is complete, let that faith, that endurance complete you in that trial, to finish and know, to endure, to be humble enough to learn from that. And that's what he's talking about. But to do that, it takes two things, one from God, and one from us. And if you look at Romans 8.28, Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God wants you to know that there's a purpose, that there's a purpose through your trial, you know, that you have that purpose, you know, that not to forget that no matter how, you know, you hear the storms that you go through and stuff, there's a reason why you're going through the trial. And not to forget that. You know, God doesn't send you to trials just because he feels like it. You know, because he wants to, you know, watch you suffer. He's doing it for a reason. You know, he's doing it for, for a purpose for you to learn from that. No matter what it is, there's a purpose why he wants you to do it. But the second thing is from God. And if you look at Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, it says this. You endure chastening, mean discipline. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of Spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chasten us and seem 
best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And those last eight words, those who've been trained by it. A lot of people aren't open to be trained by it. Did you ever, ever hear, see a, a person that's always arguing with people, doesn't like himself, grumpy? Right? They haven't been trained. They always, there's always something in life that they don't like because they went through a bad time. But when he means by training, it means that to be humble enough to endure, to endure the, the, the trials that you're going through, through the storms. And, and God is teaching you to be that way. And if you have to humble yourself to say, what, what's the purpose that I'm going through this? You know? And that's the training that God is talking about. You know, you know the hindrance to this are two, are two things that, that hinder this. They said that God always wants you to be good, that he's always wants you to be prosperous, that everything is okay. Well, God never said that everything was going to be okay. You know, God never said that you weren't going to go through any kind of trials. Right? He brings hardships for you to endure to learn from it. And I, I, I don't remember if I was on a Q&A or if I was at... Uh, I listened to the commentary on, on, uh, on the computer, but there was a question that said, why did God allow Peter to be sifted by Satan? Uh, Peter had a lot of rough edges, right? Yeah. He, was allowed, he, was, he was very loud. He had a lot of rough edges. Do you remember the time when he, Christ said to him, oh, you, you're going to deny me three times? and told his disciples that you're going to desert me in my time of need. And Peter said, never, never I'm going to, going to leave you. Never I'm going to desert you. you know? So Jesus said to him, Peter, Peter, Peter. He says, I have gave Satan permission to sift you like wheat. And I prayed for you. That statement saying, I prayed for you, says, yes. I let Satan sift you like wheat. Sometimes God lets Satan sift us by, like wheat. And we have to use discernment to know the difference. You know? He allows Satan to tempt us for his own purpose. And we, we need to know that he, in that temptation, is, is always with us. And why does he do that? Because our Father cares more about our holiness than he does our happiness. Now that might mess up your theology a little bit, but that's a biblical fact. He cares more about your holiness than he does your happiness. And what was Peter's response? If you look at 1 Peter 4, 19, Peter said, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So, with that, let me ask you this question. Suffering sometimes according to the will of God is suffering sometimes according to the will of God. 
If I ask you that question, you have to answer that. Because Peter said, therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God. Sometimes God allows us to suffer for his own reasons. And that's all God. So continuing in, in James, beginning with chapter verse uh, 4. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And what does he mean by lacking nothing? So what is he talking about? He's talking about let the trial, go through the trial and endure what the trial says so that you can have the full portion of what God wants you to have. You know, you got to realize that God wants you to have good things. He wants you to have that, but he, he's telling you to go through the whole trial and have that, and be humble to go through that and learn from it so that you can have the whole portion of what God wants you to do, lacking nothing. And that lacking nothing is what is the, is the portion that God wants you to have, whatever that portion is, but that's what he wants you to, to see. James is talking about. And that's the reasons why you go through a trial, so he, you could be more righteous at the end and more holy. And like I said, he cares more about your holiness than he does your happiness. So continue verse 5. If anyone you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives you to all liberally and without approach. It will be given to him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner that has the sun has risen where the burning heat that it withers the grass, it flower, the flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say that he is tempted. I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when this desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. James reads like sometimes like Proverbs, and a lot of people say James is like the New Testament Proverbs because it goes from one subject to another subject. And it... It's like you're having a conversation with somebody and somebody's talking about dinner and the next guy's talking about going to a movie and the next guy interjects and talks about going bowling or something like that. But Proverbs, Proverbs is the same way. It goes from one subject to, to, to the next subject. So in, in the next couple of verses, in the verses that I read, he talks about asking for wisdom, faith versus unbelief, attitude about the rich versus the poor, enduring trials, and the nature of temptation. So going back to verse 5, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom. Now, 
if anyone lacks wisdom, I always lack wisdom. You know, it's, it, it amazes me that he said, if anyone lacks wisdom. I always lack wisdom all the time. I need to go to the Lord all the time. But he said, let him ask of God. Now you would say that's a non-brainer, right? But there's Christians that don't go ask God. They don't go to God. You know, it's just the nature of the beast, the, the human nature, that sometimes we try to figure things out on our own. And it's also the sign of the times, too, you know. What do we do when we're looking for wisdom? Well, we go to the box, right? I joke around with my wife. I tell her, get off the box, you know. You say, hey, Siri, you know, where, what should, I, where should I invest my money, you know? Hey, Google, you know, what's the best way to go to such and such a place, right? We depend on this a lot instead of depending on God, you know? And the problem is, you know, we, we like things quick. So when you ask Google or you ask Siri, it's like in 2.34 seconds, you know, you get your answer, you know? And that's the way our society is sometimes. And that's, I think we, we do this, as Christians, we do the same thing, don't we? You know? We want quick answers. We want the answers right away, right? But he says to you, but James says, if anyone lacks, lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and he will be given to him. Problem is, it won't come in 2.34 seconds, right? And that's the problem. People want things right away. In Proverbs 2.6, it says, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. A lot of times we just want to figure things out ourselves. You know, we, we forget that we should go to God and ask for his advice through prayer. Um, sometimes we think we should ask and pray like King David did. He said, you know, I pray with anticipation and excitement, waiting on God to answer our prayers. You know, and we have to pray without doubting. You know, and the problem about going to God, too, a lot of people, is that you have to be humble and admit to yourself that you, you, know, you don't know what the answers are. You know, get rid of your pride and go to God humbly and ask for it without doubting. You know. And he says... And James continues, it says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. You know, there's so much stuff out there. You know, you listen to the news, you hear all these things. You know, you, you go on Facebook, you go on YouTube, and all these things are swirling around like the wind, right? That put unbelief and doubt in your mind. And God says to come to him without doubting. But these things can put doubt in your mind, right? can make you unstable. You know, um, I had to stop watching the news for a while. I come off an army, you know. I watch the news a lot. My wife watches Dr. Phil, right? You want to get depressed, watch Dr. Phil, never mind the news. You get more depressed watching him than watching the news. So we have this thing, me and my wife said, get off, I, she me, get off the news. I said, get off Dr. Phil, you know. Because it just drives you crazy. All this stuff, all this dysfunction, it's just, just, it's just a mess. You got, you got to take a break from that. So a lot of times I look for 
Christian websites uh, that give news information. And there was a headline that said, people uncertain about their faith in God more likely to suffer mental illness or mental distress. If you say, all that unbelief in you can cause you to doubt God and it leaves a void in your life, you know, and you just have to, have to shut the noise out, you know, and so what do you do? What do you do to shut this noise out? Well, there's three things that I think you can do when you recognize unbelief in yourself or in somebody else. Shut down the voices of doubt and unbelief coming from the world. Stop listening to this news. Stop listening to all these conspiracy theories. It's just going to confuse you and put doubt in your mind. You know, there's so many websites out there that contradict the scriptures. You don't know what's true, what's right. You know, you just have to shut it off. You know, stop looking at it, get into the Word, and stop looking at it. And that's my second thing that you should do, is dig into the Word, into the Word. And I, and I think he doesn't have it up there, but it says, dig into the Word of God. I have Romans ten seventeen, and I think you know that faith, it says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. Dig into the Word. When you feel any doubt or unbelief, you should open up the Bible. Now, Look, I know, look, I'm, I'm a senior citizen with a lot, a lot of guys out there, and sometimes we just can't focus on studying, you know? I've been to a, a lot of Bible classes where I see guys falling asleep when we get into the history of the Old Testament and stuff, and I just shake my head. Because a lot of times, you know, we, we can't focus on these things, and not everybody has that ability. So I, I'm going to tell you what I did when I became a Christian, right? I, I got myself a study Bible. I was advised to get a study Bible, and I opened up the study Bible, and I read the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I wanted to know how to follow Jesus. Now, God made it simple to understand how to follow him. It's, no, it's not complicated, you know? You don't have to go into deep history and learn the Greek and, and, and to find out how to follow Jesus, because when I was saved, I was in a church the people in that church really weren't following Jesus. And I wanted to know how you truly follow Jesus. So I read the first four Gospels. And I used the study Bible, because in the study Bible, you had the explanations underneath, and it told you what Jesus was talking about. Even the parables helped me a lot, because it explained the parables. So you don't have to be this theologian, scholar, genius, that want to get into the history and learn the Greek. Learn to follow Jesus. You know, that's what you should do. All the other stuff will come later if you have that aptitude. Not everybody has that aptitude. Not, not everybody has that, that aptitude of being a theologian and getting into history and stuff. I mean, it's good, you know, if, if you want to have the spark, the, the time to do that, you know. And I tell you, reading the, the, the first four Gospels and, and starting to understand them, in your mind, you say, I wonder what, where that came from. And then you start to look for yourself, you know, when you're interested. But not everybody's like that. But the gospel is made simple. Following Jesus is not a complicated method, you know. And a lot of times we make it that way. And another thing is to cry out to God. If you have any unbelief, cry out to God. Because I tell you why, he knows it anyway. You know, he's not going to look bad at you or look down on you. He knows already that you have doubt, 
or unbelief, you know. And uh, in parentheses, I have Mark 9.24. I'm not going to go there and read that. But for those who might know, is that during the, after the transfiguration, when Jesus was on the mountain, he came down. He came down, and there was this real argument going on and suffering and a lot of commotion going on. And he didn't know what it was. And this man came up to him and he says, Sir, if you can, if you can help my, my son, you know, I asked your disciples to help me with my son to read this demon, and they couldn't do it. And he goes, if you can do it, can you please do it for me? And Jesus, you know, turned to him and says, if, if I can do it? You know, and the man turned around and said to Jesus, and he said, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. And a lot of times we have pockets of unbelief. And he was very honest, the man, right? Here he is, his son, you know, it, there's a demon in the son, and he doesn't know what to do, and he really doesn't believe that, that his son is going to be cured or saved because his disciples couldn't do it. So he came to Jesus. And so he believed, but he didn't believe. You know, and sometimes we're the same way. We can have these pockets of belief and non-belief. We can compartmentalize, compartmentalize, where you know what I mean, right? We could put our belief in a box, right? Certain things we can believe in and other things we don't, you know? We can trust the Lord in certain things, but we can't trust the Lord with our finances. So cry out to God for your unbelief, you know? if you have any doubt. Verse 9, when he talks about let the lowly brother glory, brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich man is humiliation because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers in the grass. It flowers, falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in pursuit. That's like... Hebrew poetry. Personally, I, I, I don't like poetry. But basically, what the man is saying is the lonely brother is the poor man, and the rich man is really is not wealthy here on this earth, that his wealth will wither away in eternity, where the rich man is, is more wealthier than, the, than the, the, uh, the poor man is more wealthier than the rich man, and his wealth is within Christ, and that's what's important. And that's basically what that says. And it's, it's written in, like, Hebrew poetry. You know. Verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say that he is tempted. I am... <clears throat> let no one say... When he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted with the, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So, what is he saying? James is saying that God doesn't tempt you. Temptation comes from your wicked heart. The Bible says your heart is a, a, is a spring, a wellspring inside of you that needs to be fed and it, your heart can be turned wicked 
and it's your heart that tempts you and it's not God. But what God does, he does test you. Like we see with Job, he, Job got tested by God. And he will test us from time to time. So looking at Deuteronomy 8.2, it says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you to all away these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And we look at Psalm 2, Psalm 26, verse 2. It says, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my heart, test my heart, and test my mind. All right, the God tested the Jews in the wilderness, just like he tested us to see what our heart is about and how our heart is. We are tempted by our own desires. You know, because we have a, a, a lust of the flesh, we have a wicked heart inside us. You know, and it's our heart that makes us tempt us. We wouldn't be tempted if we didn't have a wicked heart. And all of us still have that. Because we become Christians, that doesn't mean our heart is not wicked. You know, there is still temptation. And it's the evil one that tempts us, and he knows that. So when Jesus was uh, talking to his disciples, Jesus says, Satan has no hold on me because he has no sin. Uh, so what did Satan do? He tempted people around Jesus because he knew he couldn't have a hold on Jesus. So he tempted Peter and he tempted Judas and he tempted the Pharisees, he, he used the Pharisees and he, and he used the prison guards to attack Jesus. He used people outside of him because he had no hold on Jesus. And we see in verse 15, he says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So he uses the, cat, the, the uh, description of giving birth, is that you can give birth to sin, and once you have that little baby sin, right, when it becomes full-blown, right, it, you can... It can grow full bone. It can bring forth death. Now let's talk about sin a little bit. You know, when we came to Christ, our sin was was forgiven. He went to the cross for that. But that doesn't mean sin doesn't still exist in our life. A lot of Christians think that sin doesn't exist in our life anymore because we came to the Lord, and that's not true. It's when you allow sin into your life without repentance that it can cause death. And what do I mean by causing death? You know, you can have sin become full-blown and it can destroy your marriage. It can destroy your social life. It can destroy you. If you allow it to grow, if you allow it to grow and, and not repent from it, it can cause death. You still have your salvation. I'm not preaching with that you're going to lose your salvation and I'm not preaching that once you're saved, you're always saved. But sin... Well, God will allow sin in your life if you're not repentive. And that sin, when it's full-blown, right, can cause problems in your life if you don't repent from it and give it up. Temptation is not sin. It's giving in to, the sin, giving in to temptation that is the sin. You can't sin your way out of the kingdom, but you can cause death within your own life because you don't repent from your sin. 
And even Jesus was tempted. Right? If you look at Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted from the outside. Satan couldn't touch him in the inside, but he can come for us because our hearts are wicked. And that's part of the problem. So continuing, do not, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning of his own. With it will he brought for us forth by the word of the truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is talking about being deceived. And the earliest time that we were deceived, if you remember the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis, right? Satan's been around since then. He deceived then, he still deceives now. If you look at Genesis 3, 1 through 5, it says this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing all good and evil. So what does, did Satan do? Satan decided to tempt the woman and engage in conversation. You don't want to engage in conversation with Satan. That's the last thing you want to do because that opens the door. Once you engage in that conversation with him, you're done. And he said to him, You shall eat, nor shall you eat, touch it, or lest you die. And the servant told the woman, You will not die. And that's how he does it. He works in, he says, You're not going to die. Believe me, he's not going to kill you. God's not going to kill you. And we know what happened after that. But Satan still does that to us today, mostly with new believers. I could tell you my own story about when I, was, when I came to the Lord. I didn't think I was worthy. I had this voice in me about my past that told me, you're not worthy. You can't, you can't, you can't be a Christian. Are you serious? And this voice in me continued for a long time. And, and a lot of times I, I, I spent nights talking to my pastor about it and stuff like that. But that's what he does. He puts his doubt in you. And then what he does, he uses your past. Right? He says to you, look what you did. You know? Look what you did, man. You, can, you, you, are you really think that you could be a Christian? And then, you know, you start to think about it. And then something happens in your life. And then he turns around and says, you see, I told you. Look what I did. And this is how he deceives you. Don't let him deceive you. Don't listen to the voices in your head that tells you other word. Use a little discernment and know that God is there for you. 
And pray about it when you feel that way. Satan interjects doubt in your heart and contradicts the Lord. And that's what he does all the time. And you, if you see, feel that contradiction, you know, pray. He does it mostly to new believers because they're the most vulnerable at that time. God has good and perfect things for you and the perfect gifts from God. But out of the good, to receive those perfect gifts, you have to be disciplined, right? And God does that. And he wants to save us, to mold us like Christ. So that, and he does that through struggle and through hardships. And he makes us like the first century Christians who said they're the first fruits of his creatures. And he wants us to be like his first fruits of his creatures. If you have any doubt or or any unbelief in your heart, pray to the Lord. The Lord's there for you. you know, going through trials, I know it's hard. You know, a lot of things happen. It's hard to see the good in what you're going through. But there's a purpose. There's a purpose that the Lord did that. Purpose why you're going through it. Be humble enough to understand and learn from it. Be trained from it. Because God's with us all the time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time that uh, we can apply the words that we heard today out of James, dear Lord. James is a tough book. It can hit you right in the gut sometimes, but we need to hear those words, dear Lord. And we just ask you that we could apply them to our lives and just bless us, dear Lord. And keep us under your wing, dear Lord. Keep the evil one away from us. Give us strength to pray and just be with us always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.